0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dan Coyle. He's a New York Times bestselling author of the books The Talent Code and The Culture Code. He's also a top advisor to some of the country's highest performing organizations, including Google, Microsoft, and the Navy SEALs. Welcome.
0: Dan, thanks for being here. Um, I'm a huge Dan Coyle fan. First of all, I've written three books with a lot of pain, and Dan has written many books, and they're best-selling books. And the book that caught my attention was a book called The Talent Code. And I met him at a school event years ago when he was talking about The Talent Code. It's probably been 15 years ago at least. And I talked to him briefly afterwards, he gave a wonderful little lecture, talked about a lot of your family issues and just really brought it home. It was a wonderful little lecture. And so I read this book and I'm going, wait a second, I'm a spine surgeon. And he talks about the formation of talent and he takes up really a lot of notches in the book called The Talent Code. The reason I'm so interested in it and I'm excited about this conversation is I probably have mentioned his book several thousand times over the years because the essence of developing chronic pain is the concepts presented in the talent code. The essence of solving chronic pain is also contained in the talent code. So i just, um, Dan, I just like to have you uh, hello first. And uh, I'd like to focus just on the talent code. You've also written a recent book again um, called, your most recent book is called The Culture Code. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yep. So, but I like to focus on the talent code, which is a remarkable book at many levels. I'd like to sort of um, tease this apart a bit. So um, can you just give a little bit of background how you actually ended up in this particular realm?
2: Yeah, thanks. It's nice to be reconnected with you. I love this world. It ends up being kind of small in a while that we met so many years ago and we're back together now. So it's a a privilege to be part of this conversation and thanks for reaching out and making it happen. Um, How did I get to this spot? Well, I was gonna be a doctor. I was gonna be like you, I was all set. I was on that path. Uh, And when I was a junior in college, um, took the MCAT, was 100% in, and went for a trip and just did a lot of reflection and ended up realizing that I, I didn't like human bodies as much as I liked words and research. And so I ended up taking this writing path. Um, but the interest that I've got in the, in the human body and how it works never really went away. So I ended up in this area, the science of performance. Uh, Perhaps it was because I grew up with two very competitive brothers, uh, always looking for an edge. We were each about a year apart, uh, but figuring out how to be a little faster and and quicker than them kind of led me down this path of wondering how everybody does that. And and so my career evolved um, basically uh, finding people who are really, really good at stuff and then meeting them, spending time with them, doing research in the science of performance and trying to figure out what that performance is made of. Because whether it's Mozart or Michael Jordan or a great politician or a great dancer or a great doctor, um, all of this stuff from the outside looks like magic. And then the closer you get, you realize it's not magic. There's actually some core processes that are happening there. And for the book, The Talent Code that, you, uh, that, that you've that you had good reason to use all these years, um, uh, the idea was to travel around and look at talent hotbeds, sort of these, these clusters of performers that existed in all domains, right? There's a little town that has a lot of shortstops, uh, baseball, great baseball players in the Dominican Republic. There's uh, places that produce great chess players. There's places that produce great musicians. And going there and looking at them, not looking at the magic, but looking at what's really going on, X-raying the behaviors, X-raying the signals that the communicators are sending there x-raying the environment and, and trying to see what the common framework is for each of these places. And that's what the talent code is about. It's about sort of how people get good at stuff. And, and, you know, the answer is, as you so well know, is, 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 deep in our brains.
0: Right. Well, people, people talk about motor or muscle memory. And of course it's actually neurological memory has nothing to do with the muscles at all. It's really how your brain is programmed and it's a programming issue And what I'd like to just, I'm going to have actually Dan talk to us in detail the three factors that are the core of his book, the uh, deep learning, the um, master coaching and obsessive repetitions. Um, But what what I'd like the audience to really understand is that people heal from chronic pain with, with learning skills that allow them to live life more effectively. So in other words, the essence of chronic disease is a lot of time in fight or flight response or stress chemistry and it breaks your body down. And the essence of the solution is getting into safety physiology, which regenerates your body. So it's a learned skill that requires repetition. And it hit me really hard a few weeks ago as I was rewriting my latest process that the people that get better practice, but there's a specific type of practice. So I want to briefly mention, before let let Dan go into some detail about how processes are learned, just visualize your entire life as a performance. whether you want to become a piano player, computer engineer, physics major, whatever it is, your life is the same thing. So the solution to chronic pain doesn't come from solving chronic pain. It comes from learning to live your entire life more skillfully. So as you develop skills to process adversity more efficiently and effectively, you spend less time in fight or flight. As you learn skills to nurture pleasure and joy, which is also a learned skill, again, you spend less time in fight or flight. So people... I keep telling people that goes on to fix your pain and Dan will understand this. If you're trying to fix your pain, where's your attention? So you actually reinforce those circuits. So the idea is, as you learn how to live your entire life more effectively, you can just visualize what he has to say in terms of your entire life. And you're going to learn to live your entire life at a very high level. So, um, <laughs> I won't quit talking. My wife really bothered. She says you have to learn how to listen, so I'm working on that. So I'll learn to listen here in just a minute. Here, but but the other thing is, you know, fixing your problems doesn't yield a good life. You have to learn how to live a good life. So my quote is to have a good life. You have to live a good life. You have to practice it. Mm. So anyway, so Dan, um, let's get to you. That's why we're here. Is um, I have there's a three. What I'm really excited about your book is that. You did research in a lot of different areas that are sort of complicated. I mean, it's not the the common thread is not that clear as you went into these different beds. So I'm curious as you went into these different beds, like Russian tennis, Dominican Republic baseball, um, UCLA basketball, Bruins championship team, etc. The skateboarders, etc. I mean, none of those seem related. Mm-hmm. But what I'm really impressed with you were able to pull out three core concepts that, that were very powerful that were common to all these situations. So if you just mention those three concepts first, and then mention how those started to evolve in your brain, and then I'd love to spend the time how these concepts apply to actually pain and healing.
2: Yeah, yeah. We normally think when we see really talented, skillful performers that it is we have all these words, languages, concepts to talk about it. Just we talk about innate skill. We talk about talent, and we even the language itself. We talk about people possessing talent. We say she is talented, right? Not she grew talent or she developed talent. We say she is. It's something that people have or don't have. Almost like it's a lottery ticket that you get a scratch off. But when you go to those places where people are developing those skills at a very, very high velocity, um, one of the first experiences I had was looking at a videotape of a, of a girl. Her name was Clarissa. She was 15 and she was practicing clarinet and she was part of a larger study by a, by a uh by a scientist named McPherson in uh, Australia about practice velocity. And we normally think that you sort of develop when you practice, you sort of develop at the same speed, your usual speed. And what he found was that there was a certain stretches of videotape that he analyzed where he could see Clarissa progressing and adding skill at this unbelievable rate. He calculated that she did a month's worth of practice in about five minutes. And so the question becomes: what is what does that look like? What is that what does that look like? Is it like this? Peak performance of effortlessness, and she's really in flow, and she's getting it. Well, actually, no. It looks really bad. It looks really difficult. She's she's making mistakes, and then she's feeling those mistakes intently. She almost like drops her her clarinet when she makes a mistake because she feels it so much. And then she looks at the music and she kind of fingers it. She gives herself kind of a shadow rep on the keys of the clarinet, and then she goes back. And whenever she feels a mistake, whenever she makes a mistake, she feels it. And that process, I saw that same emotion, that same process of keenly attending to your mistakes, of getting right to the edge of your ability, right to that painful edge where you can feel yourself tipping over and then making that mistake and feeling it. I saw that with Russian tennis players. I saw that with baseball players. I saw that with chess players, that same process. And I've, I've called that, the, a lot of people call it deliberate practice. I have in the, in the book, I call it deep practice, because that sort of is, captures more of the emotion of it. Um, and because it when you're in it, it doesn't feel like you're being deliberate. Like you're, it, it feels, it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, and it's incredibly productive. And so finding that space, that question becomes, are you willing to go to the edge of your ability? And then just past it over and over and over and over again. So... That first element is deep practice. You see it in all the talent hotbeds. You see it wherever you're growing skill. That is the emotion you see. That's the process you see and getting to the edge and go and making the mistake and then piecing those mistakes together and and piecing the performance together into chunks. Chunking, of course, is another big part of this. So that's element one. and, And think of that as almost like you're, you're building the power plant. You're building the engine. You're building each of these pieces of your skill in your brain. And the second piece is about motivation. It's, it's, it's a very different process called ignition. And that has to do with the fact, where do you get the energy to do that very effortful process? It is not easy to be Clarissa for five minutes, much less to be Clarissa for two hours a day. It's not easy to go to the edge of your ability and make a mistake and then piece that into a chunk and then do that over and over and over again in deep practice. It requires a tremendous amount of energy. So the question is, where does that energy come from? And the answer is, it comes from your windshield. When you look and see a future version of yourself, it's the act of this this sort of act of the imagination where you realize, hey, this is where I could be in five years if I do this. And around this fact of ignition is a lot of really interesting science. Like, for example, um, many great athletes and great singers are not the eldest born in their family. We're talking about who's the best Jackson singer. Well, it's not Tito. It's Michael, right? Who's the, f- and, and the best sprinters in the world average four fourth in birth order. There's not a firstborn among them. They average fourth. Why is that? Because The youngest born has got the advantage of seeing a future version of themselves walking around in the world and getting ignited, I would say, by that possibility. That is the second piece, this this ignition and being able to fill your windshield with a, a vision of your future self, where you might want to go. That, asking yourself that question, having periodic reflections where you deeply ponder where you are and where you want to go. And you seek models that capture who you want to become. That's at the core of this ignition process. And the third piece is master coaching. In each of these hotbeds that I visited, and in any place where you're really developing talent, you don't do it by yourself. People are not alone doing this. Even uh, if if it's a solitary process like playing the violin, right? what you'll find is there is Always people around them, always guides around them, always sets of teachers around them who who often have the same sort of skill set. You know, they, they tend to give very short, quick instructions. Um, they tend to be kind of tough. They tend to really challenge people. And when you think about this process, when you zoom out and take a look, wait a minute, building skill is, is very effortful, takes a ton of motivation. It is this ex- pretty exhausting process. It's not easy to spend time in this spot. It's not a walk in the park. It is work. It is type two fun. You might say the sort of fun that that requires a little bit of sweat and a little bit of effort. And you've got these, it happens in this social environment where you you're surrounded with other, uh, with, with coaches and teachers who, who know what it takes and who can help you get there in an individualized supportive way. Um, so those are the three elements deep practice ignition and master coaching and each of them functions has a very specific function in in producing a fast fluent brain which is what you want you know Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do there you go <laughs> excellence therefore is not an action but a habit and I think you know when you said you know to live a good life you have to practice living a good life I think that's a very deep truth I, th- I think and I think you see that um, when, you, when you do study. I mean, forget, forget talent hotbeds for a bit. Just, just let's talk about people who are living thriving lives. If you looked at those lives, what you would find is that these people didn't just sort of wake up one day and start doing this. Um, they didn't just sort of wake up and all of a sudden are, in a great, are, in a, are living a, a, a perfect life. What you would find is a process that I would say involves a lot of repetition, um, a lot of reflection. A lot of figuring out uh where they want to go and how they want to get there um it's like everything else in life it it looks like magic from a distance but when you get closer there there is a process there and that process is invariably sort of circular right where you get you get some feedback going and you can build this is why our lives are always going up and down right nobody it's not like you get to a plateau and you have everything figured out and everything's perfect ever There's always going to be change. There's always going to be challenges. And you always have to have some kind of a process you fall back on that helps you adapt to that change and continue to build the positive things in your life. So
0: you just said some things today that gave me a different angle on what you've written. So what I'd like to do for this part of the podcast is um, the second one, I'd like to take each one of those processes and tease them out a bit because there's implications for life and pain in general. Um, that are in sort of deep. But I want to tease out a couple of things before we jump into the second podcast in that with the master coaching, you have to practice very specific practice with deep learning. In other words, if you, I I never forget the part of the book where you say if you randomly practice that actually decreases your learning by 15 to 20%. So it's focused practice that causes talent and change as deep change but random repetitions actually decrease your learning by 15 to 20%. Could you explain that for a second? Because what, what happens in chronic pain, and I did the same thing, I became an epiphany addict. I'm desperate to get out of this hole. I don't like this. So I was always looking for the next best thing to solve my problems. So as random acts of, and everything works Everything works a little, little bit in chronic pain, but you have to put it together. it's a, it's a cohesive process. And so this random jumping around is extremely counterproductive in chronic pain, but it sounds like it's also counterproductive in learning in general.
2: It, it, it is for certain types of learning, for sure. I mean, I divide the world up into hard skills and soft skills, hard skills and soft skills. Hard skills are things where you want to do the same thing every time, where good is good. If you're playing an A minor chord on oboe, um, that is gonna look the same every time. So you, when you build that skill, you need that, you want to be very precise and almost like a Carpenter putting the different pieces together. Now there's a second kind of skill out there and that is soft skills. And you're not, in these, you're not, you're, tr- you're not doing so, the same thing every time. You're in a changing world and so you need to continually adapt and get to places you've never been. So think about a great soccer player running down the field and needing to get around 10 defenders. He has to put himself into new places all the time. And so the best sort of reps for that tend to be a little more random at times where you want to practice almost like you're in a a skateboard park and you're going to try different things and test different things. So depending on the kind of skill you want to build, um, and I think the epiphany addict that you're talking about there is somebody who's trying to build a hard skill, trying to do something very specific in their mind or their body, trying to build some new connection in their brain that is very specific, but they're in the skateboard park, you know, they're they're trying all these different things. And I think that's what you see when you see that diminishment of effectiveness of practice at randomness, that's when you're dealing with with hard skills.
0: Well, that's very interesting way to look at this. I gotta think about this for a second because the essence of solving chronic pain is actually developing psychological flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so it feels to me like what you're saying that in your skateboard park, you wanna learn how to go up a certain ramp a certain way but they're, in a different park, the ramp's going to look different. So it's sort of the principles behind skateboarding that you sort of embed over time and repetition. Mm-hmm. But let's say you decide, okay, I can't do this ramp. I'm going to try something flat or start something different. You try a few times and you quit. You try a few times and you quit. But still repetitions of how to get around 10 soccer players. Mm-hmm. So you find different ways that work and don't work. But again, it's still repetition of, of trying to get to a certain goal. And so it's interesting the way you talk about that, because I agree that the essence of solving chronic pain is actually psychological flexibility, but in an odd way, that flexibility is also a learned skill. In other words, how do you adapt to new circumstances? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, in both cases, I mean, it depends. I think we have a distinction to draw between the type of problem. I think the epiphany addict syndrome that you talked about is someone who isn't sticking with anything for very long and who's right. expecting a magic bullet. Correct. You're expecting that 10 seconds in the skateboard park is going to cure you. And that's not going to do it. That's not going to keep teach you anything. Right. In both cases, whether it's a hard skill or a soft skill, whether you are a carpenter or in the skateboard park, you still need to spend time there. You still right. need to get uh, on the edge of your ability. And that's the uncomfortable part. That's, that, that's, that's the tricky part to know that you're going to fall down on your skateboard in the skateboard park. And it's going to be kind of painful. And if you quit and go right to the some, something completely different, um, if you don't commit to the process, you're not going to see the gains.
0: The other question I wanted to ask you before we go to the next podcast is that you mentioned that about half of the people that became geniuses had their fathers pass away during their teenage years or younger. Do you remember? Yeah. Do I
2: recall that correctly? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, not you. yeah, right. Eminent, and so people.
0: in the world of chronic pain there's three parts to healing. One of is awareness of the problem and awareness of the solution. So awareness is the first step. The second part is chronic pain is complicated. Again like the soccer player is that it takes it take, there's multiple factors that have to be addressed. You have to address all of them simultaneously. It's like fighting a forest fire. Everything counts. Then the third thing is a person has to take control. I mean, that taking control is what solves the problem. So my sense, and see what you think about this, is that when you're on your own early, you do have to take charge. That's part of the solution is taking charge or necessity is the mother of invention. So where you're looking for solutions outside yourself, that doesn't work. And you talked about motivation, we'll talk about in a second again, but you're in charge. You have a choice of either thriving or not thriving. And so I, I was always impressed by that statistic, also. I'm just, could you comment on that?
2: Yeah, it's an insane statistic, actually. And, you, and it cuts across people who have become eminent in every domain, every domain in science, in politics, and everything. There, there's a crazy high degree of, of orphanhood. And there's a lot of different ways to think about it. One is to say that they got a signal very early in life that the world was not a safe place. And if no one was gonna protect them, their protector has vanished. Who's gonna protect you? Well, maybe you should protect you in um, that sense of efficacy, ownership, agency. Um, and it, you can also see um, a sort of a, a bifurcated response too, because I think there are some of the other studies that show being an orphan is not easy. Um, and you can have some, some people respond by by moving uh, it toward that place of control. And I think other people respond in a very different way. And it, it, it may, you know, they may give up control. They may end up um, having, having the opposite kind of life as opposed to someone who rises to great eminence. So it is um, neither is an illegitimate response to that, but both of them speak to the, the power of getting that signal so early. Um, and I would say that the people that, that are in that club, the orphan club end up, kind of exemplifying the potential power of what it's like to, to take full ownership, you know? Well, there. like it's
0: like every, every point in life, you have, you always have a choice. You can choose greatness or you can fold. And I do understand a lot of people's trauma is so severe that they honestly can't make the choice. I, I get that now. It took me a long time to figure that out. Some people are so broken mm-hmm. that they, have not, they don't, they don't have a choice. Choice does get taken away. Mm -hmm. so if they can choose just at least try something then there are ways of waking those people up but under adversity you can choose to thrive or choose to not thrive I mean that's 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 why that final thing people never get better unless they take control Mm -hmm. so Dan let me just review really quickly what we covered then I'm I'm excited about teasing these apart even more in our next podcast but We talked about there's three parts of creating genius. It just isn't born. It's a matter of creating it. And the could you just list
2: the three things you talked about again? You bet. Deep practice, ignition, and master coaching.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about those in detail uh, on the next podcast here. But I am I sort of let it slide the last year until I I rewrote this leg six of my doc journey, but of of the doc journey course. But The town code really illustrates the problem and the solution to chronic pain, mental and physical. And so um, I'm excited to get reconnected with the book. I'm excited about getting to talk to you. It's been a very long time, and uh, you've obviously been a busy person. So uh, thank you for uh, spending time on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Dan Coyle, for being on the show today and for sharing his discovery of the three core processes that underlie performance in all fields. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.